You both said something along the lines of, you have to be somebody other than me to become an astronaut. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of people out there from grade schoolers up to early career professionals that think that way. So I think the chance that you have conversations like this, that was kind of a big motivation of my podcast. There are probably people out there who ought to apply yeah. to SpaceX or to Sierra or to NASA. They've got what it takes to fly in space, but they're stuck in, you know, you've got to be somebody other than me. They look at you guys, current flyers or me as a fait accompli and say, well, I can't possibly be that. But none of us believed we could possibly be that from the start either. We just kept stepping our way forward until we found ourselves yeah. at the door. Don't take yourself out of it. Let, let, yeah. let NASA yeah. tell you no, which they did three <laughs> times with me and I kept trying. The only folks that have zero chance of getting in are people who don't apply. That's right. That's when That's it's right. a, you know what the outcome is. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. Have you ever thought, you have to be somebody other than me to get some opportunity? If you follow this podcast, you know that many of my guests who've had great career success have sometimes doubted that their dream was really possible, at least possible for them. My astronaut guests today are no exception. Sure, they appear to be two white guys with exceptional university degrees. But in this conversation, they revealed the journey was not as easy as the flashy top line of their resume suggests. Mike Massimino and Garrett Reisman call themselves two funny astronauts. They quickly add that this means funny as astronauts go, which may not be saying much. But that's what they titled their podcast, so we'll go with that. And I actually think you'll find they're selling themselves short. They are really funny guys who also happen to have some great nuggets of wisdom to share. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Mike Massimino and Garrett Reisman, two rather renowned astronauts from the space shuttle and space station era. Thanks for joining me today. I don't know about how renowned we are. <laughs> but Well, infamous might be the other word. <laughs> Yeah, infamous is better. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, Kathy. Good to see you. Kathy, it's a really a, an honor, a pleasure to be here with you. So thanks for having us on your program. My pleasure. So like usual, I, yeah, I've never had a chance to sit and chat with you guys about how you all became astronauts, what your paths were. And that's sort of one of the themes uh, that we explore in this podcast. So let's maybe start there if we can and 
Garrett, you're on the top of my screen, so we could kind of randomly start with you. I know you're a Jersey boy. I'm a northern New Jersey girl myself, so All right. it just proves that you can make your way from Nobodiesville in northern New Jersey into outer space. But tell me a little bit about who the young Garrett was and uh, your early influences that seem in your mind now to have shaped you and set you on the path. Yeah, I, I guess subconsciously it was my father. He was a mechanical engineer. And I, you know, he never pushed me. My parents never pushed me into any particular field or anything, but he was my role model. So I think I just wanted to be like him to a certain extent. I was always interested in all the STEM fields, but I never would have told you if you came up to me in high school uh, and asked me what I'm going to be when I grow up, I never would have said astronaut. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was interested. Don't get me wrong. I was fascinated by spaceflight. I used to watch like, I used to have an old Super 8. I'm pretty old too. I had a Super 8 movie <laughs> projector and I used to watch films of the Apollo missions. Yeah. And uh, I loved it, you know, but I also had a mom that was scared of flying. I don't mean like scared of flying like on a X-15. I mean like scared of flying on United. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no way she's going to let me be a test pilot. And all the people I saw in those Apollo films, they were all test pilots. So I just figured that wasn't for me, you know, and it was much later. I, so if you asked me in high school, I would have said, yeah, maybe I'll be an engineer, or scientist or doctor. Had you and your dad done a lot of projects together? I mean, was that kind of an MO around your home? take apart the car or he, he wasn't that good actually he, so he, <laughs> i remember he used to like I, I, he never used to like to read the instructions he was one of those guys you know oh, yeah. was gonna figure it out so i remember once he put in the the microwave and i'm saying dad i don't think that the labels are supposed to be upside down you know you can't read them <laughs> and you put it in upside down so you know we did some stuff we had like uh we used to do model rockets actually that was a course i took so i kind of i kind of pushed him into that i suppose he had fun doing that with me and and the usual, you know, usual stuff like Little League and what, whatever. But we weren't like making rockets that could reach the Carmen line in our backyard or anything like that. Yeah. Whatever. Were you Boy Scouts or organized sports? You know, to be honest with you, I, I was in the Cub Scouts and I, I started Weeblos and I failed out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. It was too competitive. You know, all those badges and, and things, you know, I, 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 uh, I dropped out. I never made it to Boy Scouts. And Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. But yeah, I, I did that kind of stuff as a kid, and 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 I really love math and science and everything that had to do with the kind of the STEM stuff. But it was when I was in college, and it was near the end of my undergraduate years that I got a hold, and like Air and Space Magazine did a an article on the astronauts they had just selected. I remember seeing people in there like Leroy Chow and Ellen Ochoa. This is when they were just being selected, and I was reading their backgrounds, and I was and I, I realized they weren't all test pilots, and uh -huh. and that was my kind of eureka moment. I realized, oh. Maybe this is within the realm of possibility, and that changed everything. Your path from Parsippany, New Jersey, right? Straight to Caltech for undergrad? What was the... I went to University of Pennsylvania. I wasn't even I wasn't even 100% sure I wanted to be an engineer, so I, I hedged my bets. I was a dual-degree business and engineering student. I ended up really liking the technical stuff much more than the business stuff, so I ended up going off to Caltech for grad school. Uh, that's, cool. what, that's what brought me out to the West Coast. And Mass, Mike Massimino... I don't even know Garrett's call sign, but Mike Massimino, because that's too many letters for most of us to spell or say, so he just goes by mass. You started not too far away in New York City, right? In the New York area. Yeah, just outside the New York City line. Uh, the, my hometown's Franklin Square, so right outside the Queens border of New York City, about two miles from Belmont Racetrack. If that's where I grew up. So I'm a little bit older than Garrett, so I actually remember the moon landing. I was six years old when that happened. And that's what got me interested in the space program. But I, maybe similar to Garrett, maybe for different reasons, I never thought I could become a, a military test pilot. 
I was just afraid of heights and didn't like going very fast on my bicycle. You know, I wasn't a thrill seeking <laughs> kind of kid. You know, I didn't like most things. They worried me. You're defying me. the astronaut stereotype, right? Exactly. So I was like, I don't know if this is for you. I don't think I, I don't think I cut out to be a military test pilot like my hero, Neil Armstrong. Garrett very fondly talked about his dad. My, my dad worked for the New York City Fire Department. So, and he was very, he grew up on a farm. So we had a lot of tools. He was always tinkering around with stuff. He never had a chance to go to college, but I think he did with his job at the fire department kind of instilled a sense of the importance of doing doing something in service of others or for your country or for your town or whatever, whatever that might be. And uh, so I think that led me to to want to do a job that was uh, doing that. It was serving something that was bigger than just uh, bigger than your company, paycheck. bigger than your paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I got that installed from my dad and. I liked math and science, as, as Garrett mentioned. And so when it came to picking out of the college, I, I wanted to become an engineer. And when I was a senior in college, the movie The Right Stuff came out. Ah. I really wanted to see it. I always had this interest in the space program. But like Garrett mentioned, I mean, I think I was in the same situation. I thought, well, you know, it's not for me. I, who does that? You know, you have to be somebody other than me to do that. But I saw that movie and then I read the book, Tom Wolfe's book, and of the same title, The Right Stuff. And and I started finding out more about what was going on in the space program at that time. So this was now the mid-1980s. And uh, I realized that NASA was picking people who were not military test pilots. A lot of them were still in, in the military, but there were also a lot of civilians, engineers, and scientists. And so I started thinking, well, heck, you know, I'm an engineer. I might need to get some more credentials or experiences and, uh, and a graduate degree, but maybe this isn't beyond the realm of possibility. And even if I can't get selected as an astronaut, I can still contribute to the space program in some way. So I worked for a couple of years after college uh, for IBM as an engineer and then went to grad school to pursue a career with NASA with the hopes of applying to become an astronaut. Yeah. And MIT, where you went for your grad work, is mm -hmm. uh, pretty well known as a, a fast lane towards the astronaut corps. I mean, it had, you know, its roots go all the way back to contributions in World War II and certainly very early contributions to the Apollo program. Was that part of your decision about going there or just wanted to be in Boston? Well, MIT, I thought, was the best place I could go to if I could get in there. I liked the Northeast. I was from New York. I went to college in New York City at Columbia. And so Boston wasn't too much of a stretch. And it, you know, I felt like that was the right place for me if I could get in. And it's such a great school. But yeah, once I started finding out more about the school and its roots in the space program, going up there was like, I think... To me, it felt like if you, know, if you want to become a, an actor or you know, a performer, I guess you go to Hollywood or you go to Broadway and you hang around there and see what comes up. That's kind of the way it was, I felt like, at MIT. It wasn't a crazy idea to try to become an astronaut. A lot of people want to become an astronaut up there. Two guys in my lab, Nick Patrick and Dan Tanny, were in, were in my same lab. We didn't have a very large lab. There was never more than maybe six or seven of us in there at one time, getting rotated in and out. And both of those guys and me were in the same lab together. Other guys that I know uh, that were up there as well, uh, Greg Shamatov was up at MIT when I was there. I was friends with him. So it wasn't it wasn't a crazy idea. All yeah. of a sudden, it seemed like, ah, this happens. You know, people come here and go become astronauts. All three of those lab mates that you mentioned, they became astronauts as well before yeah. you? Nick, Dan Tanny with me. We, uh, we okay. actually interviewed together. I hadn't seen him since grad school. Then we interviewed the same group. Nick and Greg were both within Garrett's class, so they came in slight, and I got to write recommendation letters for him. So <laughs> you can blame you can blame me, Garrett. 
But they, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're great Thanks guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks yeah, a lot you're, you're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that's what I think it was. I think it's good to be surrounded by like-minded people. I, I guess I think that was helpful. That there were, you know, there was a very active space club. Uh, Peter Diamandis you may have, may have heard of him. Uh, he yeah, started the X Prize. Yeah, so he was a grad student there too. He's one of my. I knew I met him right before we got introduced because we were both going or grad students there. And he became a good friend of mine and I worked on projects with him. You know, he was starting all kinds of stuff up there at MIT. So and David Newman, who went on to become a deputy, it was one of my best friends still to this day. So, and she ended up the number two at NASA. Number two person at NASA. Yeah. She's a, she went, she was a professor at MIT and went over to NASA for a while and then back. So that's what it was like. You know, there were, it was like a lot of like-minded people. And I think that that's, that's helpful because it doesn't seem as crazy and you help each other and you, share information and you share the dreams with others like that. And that's what I think was very helpful at MIT. I wasn't necessarily thinking in that way when I, when I was wanting to go there, but, but that's the way it turned out. MIT and Caltech to a lot of outsiders have a, a reputation of being very cutthroat competitive elbows out. You kind of just as soon take your lab mate out at the knees as help them succeed at a project. Is that that doesn't sound like that's what either of you experienced. That, that was definitely not the case at, at Caltech. I don't know. We, I've heard stories about MIT, too. I think those guys are savages. <laughs> 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 but at Caltech, it was, uh, it was one of the things that drew me to Caltech was they really treated the graduate students very well. Important ways as far as just showing respect, especially in our mechanical engineering department. They really treated us like junior faculty rather than a bunch of uh, automatons that you could use up to turn a crank and get publications and then send them on their way. It was not that like that at all. We, they even, this is kind of superficial, but they even allowed us to become full members of the faculty club. So we used uh-huh. to go there for dinner and hang, and, and they treated us really, and they gave us nice offices. They really treated us kind of like equals. They wanted your check at the faculty club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who's paying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just ordered the cheap stuff. I get the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it was it was the kind of thing where they, they viewed their job as, as kind of like at NASA, really, that, that they were going to do the hard work at selection and try to screen very carefully. And then once you're in, you're in and, and now you're part of the team and they're going to take care of you. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I think MIT is the same way, Kathy. It was uh, I think it's hard to get into these places. Yeah. And it's just like NASA. Right. But once once you're in and you're part of that team, it's very helpful. Both Nick Patrick and Greg Sharmatov were really instrumental in me getting through MIT. I, I had failed my qualifying exam the first time I had taken it. And part of the reason that I failed, maybe the big the biggest reason, I think, was that I got I just got destroyed on the oral exam when they started asking me questions. You had to think on your feet. And I wasn't good at that or used to that. And both of those guys uh, helped me with a couple other students as well, practice the oral exam. So we would you know, set up in a conference room and they would come up with a problem and they would just start firing away and got me ready for my second attempt, which I was able to pass. So as Garrett said, I think that that's the way it was. I carried on to NASA as well, you know, hard to get in because that's, you know, many people want to do it. But uh, but once you're there, I think the the important thing was the the teamwork and helping each other. That's really funny, Mess. I never knew that story uh, about no. those guys because yeah. I owe my success, and I, I would I would never <laughs> pass my qualifier exam if it weren't for Bob Benkin. Yeah. So Bob Benkin would later become an astronaut too, right? The next class after me, and he ended up being chief of the office, and also he he was the first. Uh, he and 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 Chunky Doug Hurley were the first ones to fly in the SpaceX Dragon. At the time, Bob 
his office, he was a grad student. His office was right across the hall from me. And he was uh, working in control theory, dynamics and controls. At Caltech, you have to pick four subjects. You have to do math. Uh, and then as a as a thermal fluids guy, I kind of had to take fluid mechanics and thermal sciences. So three of my four were determined, but the fourth one was kind of my choice. And I picked controls because I had like, as like a, a dilettante, I had an interest in that subject. Okay. So, but I knew that they were going to be judging me on the other three, that that's really what mattered. So I focused really all my preparation on those three. And it's a long story and I won't, it, it involves uh, a, a lot of other facets to this, but um I made it through the first three exams with flying colors. All right. I, I, I knocked it out of the park. I'm, I'm cruising. And then I panicked because I realized that I, I didn't prepare for the fourth one at all. And now, <laughs> and now I got to go in there and, I'm, and it's the night before the exam. And I'm sitting there with sweat coming down and I'm like really just nervous. And I, I went across the hall and I knocked on Bob's door and I was like, Bob, I got controls tomorrow. Can you help me out? And he pulled an all nighter with me. And we, wow. we stayed up all night and he, he he just walked me through everything he expected them to ask. And the next day I go into the exam and the first question, sure enough, it's, it's something that Bob had prepared me for. So I just spit it out. You know, I just I answered it <laughs> like uh, draw a Rube Lucas cool. diagram or whatever. I, I did it. And then uh, uh, then he asked me another question. And it also is one of the ones that Bob. So I, I'm all good to go. And I like I got that. And, and, and now I'm like two thirds of the way through this thing and I'm, I'm, I'm acing it thanks to Bob. And they asked me another question. Now they're getting into some pretty esoteric stuff, right? They asked me, and, and I said, I'm sorry, but I can't, I, I'm getting cocky because I figure I got this now, right? So I said, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. And they looked at me like, what, what do you mean you can't answer that question? You got to answer the question. You, it's your it's your job. That's kind of what this is all about. And I'm like, no, I can't answer it because Bob didn't tell me what the answer was last night when we pulled an all-nighter. <laughs> so I got no idea what I can't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> and they let me, they let me squeak by anyway. <laughs> Never underestimate the power of comedy, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so there you are finally in an interview pool. When I came through, NASA would bring about 200 people down in batches of 20. And there was not a second stage after that. You either just got the cool phone call or the disappointing phone call. But what was different, if anything, when you guys went through? And what do you reckon the secret sauce was? You said you guys each had a couple, three folks just in your in your lab at grad school that were aiming... They were aiming to get a seat, one of those few seats as well. Probably 20 to 50 people at least were fully qualified finalists when you guys were plucked. Why you? What do you reckon put you over the top? What you got, Mass? Clerical error. I, I think, you know, <laughs> na na NASA failure is an option, apparently. They, they, thought I was, they thought I was Mastracchio. They had, uh, they had you know, two of us. You said my name is difficult to pronounce. I think the selection board thought the same and... Rick Mastracchio was uh, was in the same was in the same pool. I said, let's take both of them. What's the difference? Now, I think, I, I, you know, the first time I sent in my application, I got a rejection letter six months after whenever they send them out. And then I applied a second time for the that was a class in 90, I guess, the first time. Then a class in 92, I applied for and I got another rejection letter. And then the class of 94, which became the class of 95, I got an interview for that one. Uh, by that time, I was done with grad school. So I thought the first one, you know, I need to get done with grad school. And then the second one, maybe I needed some experience. And so I, I had worked at NASA for a couple of years and I'd gotten that and I'd finished my grad school program by the time I applied the third time. But then I failed the eye exam. I was medically disqualified. Uh -huh. And this was back in the days, Kathy, where, you know, you needed to see pretty well without your glasses. And uh, yeah. I don't know if LASIK existed. And so I was DQ'd there, which was pretty disappointing because they, they told me they wouldn't read my application any longer. 
after that, once you're DQ'd, you're DQ'd. But I started asking questions and found out about something called vision training, which NASA was like, well, you can do it. It's just training your eyes. It's, you're not changing anything really with your eyeball, but you know, we don't think it's going to work, but go ahead. So I went through it. This, this, this uh, Dr. Hopping was her name, Dr. Desiree Hopping. Uh, when she saw me sitting in the chair, she, you know, she was kind of surprised. She said, you're here for vision training. And I said, yeah. And she said, it only works with kids because their eyes are still developing. <laughs> but I, you know, I told her I'd be really immature. She wouldn't know the difference. And I begged her and she helped me. <laughs> you could deliver I on could that. I could do that. You. Yeah. You know me well enough that I wasn't making that up. That was truth. <laughs> so uh, she helped me. I was able to pick up a couple lines to requalify. So at least I could apply again. And then the, the fourth time in, I, I, I got a, another interview. This is for the class of 96 where I was selected. And I think it's just you keep trying. In my case, I think it was just to keep trying. And on the other end of it, I know Garrett was involved in selection as well. And I'm sure you were too, Kathy, because once you get in, then you get involved a little bit of looking at applications. You know, what we were talking about, which was someone who could be a, a team player, uh, someone that, yeah, they look great on paper, but are they the kind of person that we can count on like a family member that if we make a mistake, they're not going to throw us under the bus. They're going to help us and we're going to help them and they're going to accept our help. They're going to admit when they need help. And someone that's just going to stick by you and, and be there for you as a good team player. I think a lot of it though, too, is uh, remember Bob Cabana on our first day when we got sworn in, we were all dressed up in suits and we were over in building one. That's that the headquarters building at the Johnson space center. We're the big boss. We're, we're the, the big, big bosses. bosses. And we were going to put our, you know, we were going to be sworn for the ones who were civilians. I mean, there were a lot of military and also people that worked for NASA. But I was coming in, as, but all the whole class was there, all of us, including our international astronauts. And uh, we were going to get we were going to get sworn in as uh, civil servants. Those of us who needed to do that. And but before that happened, we were going to have a little press conference. We we're all dressed up. And Bob said he said to us, you know, we're really happy to have you here. We're very excited about it, but we got to remember for every one of you, there are thousands who would trade places with you. And the only difference between you and them is that you're more fortunate than they are. And I think adds a lot to that. We we, uh, we kind of got lucky and uh, and we owed it to the opportunity that was given to us and not given to others to do the best we could. Yeah. What do you think, Garrett? Yeah. So I, I, I agree with all that. And, and Kathy, you know, too, at, at the end there, having been on the board, it's really everybody on paper is perfectly qualified. So it's no longer about like, well, does this person, did he fly one more type of aircraft than this other person? Or I mean, at that point, it's all it's all in the noise. And really it becomes very subjective, right? It, it, at the end there, it's really more about like what Mass was saying. It's, it's more about, it's, it's more like picking people that you want to go on a camping trip with than it is like a job interview at that point, because it's not like a, a job where you, you're, you're together nine to five and then you go home. Our job is different. And there's interpersonal skills uh, that, that really matters. And so it's really hard to figure out, you know, like why, why did they pick me? Why did they pick any of us? Because it is very subjective. And I think at the end, everybody's, there's no one right answer. Because I think each member yeah. of the board also, it'll, it'll vary depending on who's on the board. Because everybody has their own idea of who the ideal candidate is. We wouldn't all want to go camping with the same people, right? <laughs> and, and so the only thing I could point to, if people ask why me, I really have no idea. But the only thing I could point to is I, had a, I, I did have a unique strategy, which was <laughs> which was <laughs> for the interview. <laughs> so they, 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 you go, you're there for a whole week, but mostly it's like medical exams and stuff. And the crux is really this one interview, which is like a 45-minute thing. And that's like everything's riding on that 45 minutes. It's pretty stressful. So my my strategy was the chair of the board was John Young. 
And for those listeners, renowned who, astronaut, of yeah. the moonwalker, all, everything. Yeah. So he's legitimately renowned astronaut, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was like, he is the yeah, astronaut. There's no, astronaut, no doubting right? that. Yeah, he flew the first flight of Gemini. Uh, he flew with Gus Grissom. He flew to Apollo to the moon twice, walked on the moon. He flew the first, the, he was a commander of the first space shuttle flight. So, I mean, this guy's done it all. And so there's, I knew there's no way I'm going in there and impressing him by the fact that I was captain of my high school wrestling team, right? That was not going to work. <laughs> so I had to come up with another strategy. So my strategy was I'm going to try to make him laugh. Ah. That was my going in plan. And I accomplished that in the first five minutes because I, I sat down and he looked at me and he said, how's it going? And I said, well, it's going better, a lot better than my last job interview because at least this time I remembered my pants. Which is true. (laughs) (laughs) Went on a job interview at TRW to become a guidance navigation control engineer. And to beat the traffic in L.A., I stayed over at my girlfriend's house at her parents' place that was nearby. And I unpacked in the morning. I got my my jacket, my tie, (laughs) my dress shirt. I I didn't have pants. I had to go in there with powder blue jeans. And and I told him the whole story. And he laughed. And uh, and I said, so far, you know, so far, I'm doing a lot better. and that, and it, and it was kind of all downhill from there. So I, that's the only thing I can point to. <laughs> Good. And and I should note at this point that these are the two astronauts who started the two funny astronauts podcast a while back. So they're seriously toned down for this conversation. But we're, we're, we're trying, Kathy. We're trying. I'm doing my best not to get sucked in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bad influence. I know. <laughs> Not for much longer. Yeah. And in fact, you know, let's just pivot to that right now. And I want a truthful answer from each of you on this. Is it more fun to fly in space or to do a show with Stephen Colbert? <laughs> well, well, I didn't do the show with Stephen Colbert. I did other ones. Yeah, you, you, you got your, your showbiz yeah, chops, yeah. too. I, I don't have to answer that. That's an easy one because I got to do both. I was in space when we did this show. So I got to do both at the same time, which I think is a win-win. How'd that come about? That's a funny story. So it, it, it wasn't planned. It's was about a month before launch, and I'm sitting on a couch watching his show with my wife, and we were both fans, real big fans of his show. And at that time, he was selling these bracelets for wrist strong. I mean, he was mocking the. We had the proliferation of, of, <laughs> of those bracelets at that time, you know? Like they started out with like what Live Strong, Lance, Lance Live Armstrong. Strong for Lance yeah. Armstrong, yeah. But then it became like everything had a different color bracelet. People were like, it would cover like their whole arm, right? They'd have tons yeah. of these. So he was, he was. Instead of a tattoo, it's much less painful. That's true. Yeah. And you could take it off. Yeah. So he was making fun of that because he, I guess he injured his wrist. And so he made a wrist strong bracelet, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he, and, and, and so I said, this will be fun. I'll, we can order one and hopefully I'll get it, you know, before we launch. And it showed up like the day I went into quarantine just in time. And I put it in my pocket and took it with me. I'm like, I'm going to wear this thing up in the space station. We'll see if anybody notices. And for a long time, nobody noticed. But then a friend of mine who is a, a writer, uh, he noticed and he sent a picture of me wearing the thing to his book agent. And his girlfriend at the time worked on this TV special with Willie Nelson, who w- which was produced by this woman who was then a producer in Colbert. So it went like this picture <laughs> went from my friend to his book agent, to his girlfriend, to Willie Nelson, to, to the producer and ended up on Stephen Colbert's desk. And like, look at this. And he loved it. And then it came all the way back. Uh, and then the email came back through all those people up to space saying that they want me on the show. And I was like, oh, I'm in big trouble now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell NASA Public Affairs about this. And they were not. They Actually, it was really funny. They sent me an email saying, never in a million years will we allow you to go on that show. It's improper. It's irreverent. 
That's the NASA public affairs I remember. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And they're going to portray NASA in a bad light. And then I sent an email back and copied the, the public affairs guys at headquarters and said, uh, okay, I'll tell them no if you want me to. But if you're worried about them portraying NASA in a bad light, I think telling them to go take a hike is probably <laughs> not the best approach. And and headquarters agreed. So we ended up doing the show and the rest is history. Um, asked, you, you've been a TV star yourself? I don't know about star, but I, no, I've, I've had a chance to be on some fun shows. Uh, David Letterman and Craig Ferguson had me on a few times the the one, though, that uh, uh, was probably the most involved or the kind of most fun was the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. I, I think the lesson there is just sometimes when you have an opportunity to say yes, say yes to those opportunities. And you know, we think about how we can make things happen. I need to do this and that. I need to put, the, you know, and I, I think just sometimes when an opportunity comes up, you say, OK. And what happened with in that case with that show was I got a call from Bert Ulrich, who's a NASA public affairs guy in Washington. And he asked me, he goes, Mike, you know about the Big Bang Theory? And I go, yeah, of course. You know, I'm a Hubble guy. The, there's a big explosion and the universe is expanding. <laughs> he said, no, no, the television show. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard of it. I hadn't, I've never seen a show. That, they were in like season four or five. And he said, well, you know, it's a very good show. And un unlike what they told Garrett about the Colbert thing, you know, he was like, it's uh, very positive. I think it was uh, the, the deputy administrator at the time had met Chuck Lorre or Bill Parady, one of the creators of the show, and they want to do more with NASA and they want to talk to an astronaut about some ideas. And I thought you would be the right guy to talk to him. And so I said, okay. So I just happened to be out in L.A. It wasn't like anything really that official. I, they they said, just drop by when I'm next time in L.A. And I was watching my son play water polo out there in uh, Los Angeles area. And in between games, I stopped by Warner Brothers to their writer's room. And it was great. I just told them stories uh, about different things. They asked me questions and then they asked me to help with a script. And then I went out to see a taping with Scorch, Charlie Hobart, one of our other astronaut friends. He liked the show and uh, said, I think I can get us in to see it, you know, see a tape. So we went out there and saw the show. And about four months after that, Bill Prady, the, the co-creator of the show, calls me up and says, hey, Mike, we, we have an idea. We'd like you to come in and, and try to do a cameo. And uh and I said, well, you know, I'm not, I don't act. I haven't been, the last role I had was in the third grade. I played Rufus Robin. That was the last, <laughs> that's the last role I had. I was a Robin with the big, you know, the, and that was it. I was in a third grade and he. And, and I, I aced it, but I was a bird. I, did, I think I did all right on that one. But, but he said, uh, that's okay. You've been you for a long time. We just want you to come in and be you. And I'm like, okay. So I came in for that. And uh, and then that led to a total of seven cameos on that show. But I think and that was fun. So is it more fun in flying in space? I would say, like, that was your original question? Yeah. Like, no. no. But but it's pretty good. <laughs> and there's a lot of, I think what I found was there's a lot of commonality between it, that it's a big production. You know, there were a lot of behind the scenes people. There's the directors, the writers come up with all the great ideas and then and, and the actors just execute kind of like as we were astronauts, we kind of execute the plan and then we get help when we need it. And the team is there and there's, you know, the, the makeup people and the and the, the wardrobe and and all everybody there. It's, it's a huge team effort. And everyone in that show was part of a great team, great teammates. So not as much fun, but it was it's still a lot of fun. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. But, you know, the astronaut corps, astronaut program we're part of creating the plan that we are then going to execute. Yeah. I mean, I always thought it was, it was kind of like being a musical composer who then gets to stand on the podium and conduct the orchestra and, and play several of the instruments. Yeah. Is it more stratified? I would think it is. 
in the TV world? Not everybody's writing, not everybody's contributing jokes. No, I think I think that's it. Yeah, no, I think everyone has. I found anyway, in my experience, Garrett can chime in, of course, with his. They did a little bit like sometimes they would ask you, like in my case, if I could say, well, I think we would really say this and not that so I can contribute a little bit. Yeah. But in that in that case, it seemed to be, you know, the, the script was written. You could adjust it a little bit. I think movies might be a little bit different, but that's the way it was with that TV show. And everyone had pretty good defined roles, but they would also listen if you had a suggestion. And I just would add one thing you talked about being an astronaut when you talked about what the fun was. I, I you know, I love flying in space, but for me, the the job on the ground, the figuring this stuff out, especially when you were assigned to a flight, you know, it, with the Hubble flights, getting a chance to figure out what we, how we were going to do stuff and what we needed. That's what I actually miss the most is that working with that bigger team figuring stuff out. And that's a huge part of our job that people probably don't realize that it's, it's, you know, you only fly in space, even for a long mission, like Garrett was on, you're still compared to the amount of time you prepare for it. It's not that much. And so it's, it's that fun on the ground. So that was a lot of fun with the job. And yeah, I I got the sense, at least in in the show I've been involved with, it was a little more defined of who was doing what. I don't know what Garrett thought with his stuff. Yeah, in my case, back in the early shuttle days, I mean, three flights was like a total of 22 days in orbit. Yeah. It's 15 years in the program and 22 days in orbit. You don't stay just for those 15 days. You stay because of how cool all the other stuff is that you get to do, Absolutely. Right? Pretty amazing. Garrett, one other more serious thing I've been interested to ask you, you were the first Jewish astronaut to spend time on the space station. There have not been that many Jewish astronauts overall, and them are still a small percentage. But I'm curious... What did that mean to you? Did it mean something particular and special to you to carry that flag, as it were, onto the International Space Station? So I, I was the first Jewish crew member. I wasn't the first. Uh, Dave Wolf was up there, I think, or somebody. I'm trying to remember. Dave Wolf was on Mir. Did he also do station? He did an assembly flight. Didn't, he did an assembly okay. flight, I think, before I got there. So yeah. I wasn't the first one to set foot in the thing, but I was the first ISS crew member that was Jewish. And since I was the first one, it means for a period of time, there was also the only you know, Jewish <laughs> ISS crew member. But that distinction didn't last very long because the guy that replaced me was Greg Shamatov, who's also Jewish. And then when he came up to take over and I was heading back down in Discovery, I looked at him and said, hey, don't forget, you're number two. <laughs> 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 so it didn't have the significance. I, I was good friends and, and, and Mass was too with, with Alain Ramon, the first Israeli astronaut that we lost on Columbia. And we both worked together closely with his family after the accident. And we got to see um, just how meaningful his mission was. And it was really powerful. We went, um, you know, within a a week or so, actually within nine days of the accident, we flew to uh, Tel Aviv for his funeral. And his face was like covering skyscrapers, like massive murals of, he meant so much to that country. That country had pinned so many hopes on him. And then they were tragically lost and it was really and and so but i watched that up close and i watched everything he did you would think like judaism is kind of like this narrow little group but it's actually very multifaceted right there are many different types of jews out there there are religious jews there are secular jews there are ashkenazi jews sephardim jews there's like there's a lot of different flavors and there's a lot of big divisions in that society and in israel in that nation so what he did very masterfully was make sure that everybody felt a part of it and, and and felt invested in what he was doing by and he did a lot of that by what he took with him so he took some artifacts from from world war ii from some of the, the survivors of the concentration camps 
he took some religious artifacts he took some things from the u.s uh, for the israeli uh defense forces that he was uh, squadrons that he was a part of and and he, he he really did a very good job of reaching out to all these different groups um, uh, jews in the united states jews in israel and i watched him do all that and i knew that what i was doing was nowhere near as, as significant or as important but I tried to follow his his uh, role. So so I did do a few things. For example, I put a mezuzah, which is the little, me, usually metal or, it was or on wood. The, on a door jam yeah. as you enter a house. And his inside is a little a parchment scroll that's got a prayer on it. So this is a traditional Jewish thing that you do to, to put on your door. It comes straight out of the, the Old Testament. So I took one of those with me and I put it on my sleep station. It's funny, NASA safety objected because there's this tiny little tiny piece of paper in there. And they said it was a fire <laughs> hazard. And uh, I was like, really? And I looked around and I'm like, there's, we got paper printouts from like procedures and Everywhere. stuff like all yeah. over the place. <laughs> Post-it notes all over. And I'm like, yeah, you got, it's like the size of a fortune and a fortune cookie. But anyway, so I did that and, and I took And Rona Ramon, Elon's wife, gave me uh, a few things, uh, most notably a copy of the Israeli Declaration of Independence and a cloth that was a symbol of the office of the president of Israel. And then Shimon Peres called me up on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the founding of the state of Israel. Wow. Hmm. No, no, 60th, 60th anniversary. And uh, he gave me a phone call and I, I talked to him and I, and I had his thing and, and it was great. And I got to go back afterwards and go to, to his residence and give it back to him. And that, that felt great to help them out and, 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 and do in a little way, contribute a little bit to moving beyond the tragedy. So uh, yeah. that meant a lot to me. Yeah, I went scuba diving at a lot, uh, I think nice. it was 2018, and there is a large fragment of Columbia debris in the airport mm -hmm. as a reminder, as a memento and a memorial to Elon. I was really stunned to see it there, and it's very moving to see something like that. Yeah. So, you know, moving beyond being an astronaut is an interesting challenge. Mm -hmm. Moving out of any long-term intense job, I think everyone goes into a little bit of free fall figuring out what is next, how do I even figure out what's next. You know, moving from being an astronaut with all the cachet and celebrity dimensions that it's got, how did you guys find navigating that? Was it challenging? You just kind of knew it was time to move on? Somebody in the office pulled you aside and said, <laughs> we've had enough of you, why don't you be out of here by next week? How did that go? I'll just say this and then turn over the mask, but I think the best piece of advice well, two things that I was told. One was that you only get to leave the astronaut office once. Some, you know, really want to make it worthwhile. And two, you always don't want to be leaving something. You want to be going to something, right? And, uh -huh. and so having something to look forward to. And in my case, it was SpaceX. So I, I left and was excited to see what was happening in the private sector. And in particular, at SpaceX and uh, was very excited about going and being a part of that. And so I did it voluntarily knowing that I could fly again, and, and but I was happy with, with my experience at NASA, and I felt like I had an opportunity to make an even bigger contribution outside of NASA to human spaceflight. So yeah. that's why I did it. You got any insight about their spacewalking spacesuits that they might use on the upcoming Inspiration flight? Would you get in one? Yeah, I think that the suit, I'm not worried about the suit too so much. I got to be careful here because some of that stuff is proprietary. But the Oh, come on, tell us. <laughs> it's top secret, man. <laughs> I can tell you, man. I have to kill you. Then he has to shoot us. <laughs> so it's a modified IVA suit, meaning that it's a suit that was designed for use inside the vehicle, not for necessarily to do a spacewalk. But hey, that's what that's how a lot of us got started, right? That's how uh, you know Ed White when he did yeah. the first American spacewalk yeah. as a modified Gemini 
IVA suit and, and Alexei Leonov is a modified Russian IVA suit. So basically SpaceX is, is following that same game plan, more or less. Yeah, cool. What about you, Masp? Got thrown out, walked out? Yeah, no, I, I, I left on uh, my own. What happened, I think, to me, and I, I, I think about this a lot because it's I, I think when you're faced with a really tough decision like that, in life, whether it's, you know, like leaving a job like that or whatever other life decisions we make, and they're really tough to make. I think there's always a little bit of regret in either direction. I think if I would have stayed, I was, ah, oh, I could have left. If I left, I could have stayed. It's really a tough call. When I look back on it, though, I think what happened to me was it hit me while I was in orbit after the spacewalks were over on my second flight. I felt satisfied, and I never felt that before. Uh, related to my job at NASA, I felt like I had, I was part of a great mission, and I had a, I, I had been a part of a great crew, and that last Hubble mission for me was just a wonderful experience, and I felt satisfied in what I had accomplished there. And to me, it was uh, recognizing that it was maybe time for me to move on. I was offered another flight actually to go on a long duration flight on a Soyuz, and. Yeah, it just wasn't right timing. I, I, the way I looked at it for my family, and I, I turned it down. And I, once I really thought about it, and I turned that down. I said, "Well, I'm really telling myself something now," because it wasn't yeah. like, "No, now you never can." All right, you know, maybe just keep training, and maybe in a couple of years, if the timing's better. But once I was really faced with with that decision and made that decision, I realized that, well, you know, maybe I, there's something else out there. I feel like I should be looking for to do and. The year before I was selected, I had worked at Georgia Tech as a tenure track faculty member. And I kind of liked that and thought that, well, if I never get picked to be an astronaut, I think academics is a maybe a good spot for me. And so that's what I thought uh, kind of all along that I would eventually go back to that. And while I was still with NASA, I had a chance to explore that a little bit because we work with universities and I was able to do a, a rotation over at Rice University for about a, a year mm-hmm. and a half. And then another for about a year over here at Columbia. And, uh, and then that led to me getting an offer. And that's when I really yeah. left was when, uh, when I was offered that job uh, to be here at Columbia. So it really is a, a tough decision. I think that if you stay, I think there's going to be, Oh, should I have left? And if you, if you're at a point yeah. where you leave, should I have stayed? It's a hard call, but I, I do think that we typically make those decisions for the right reasons. And then once that you make that decision and you're in it, you, you make the best of it. And it's been great. It's been great. I only really miss it when things are going crummy on earth, you know, like yeah. I'm, I can't believe it. I'm stuck in traffic in New York. What am I out of my mind? Yeah, okay, you just Why am I dealing here. with this? You know? So, but I, I certainly do miss it, but what's kind of fun. I never really would have expected this, Kathy. It's kind of like we're doing now. I really missed being part of the office, you know, and being around everybody in the office. But what I found as a former astronaut, I've gotten to know a lot of the former astronauts better. And you and I knew each other because you were a Hubble astronaut and you helped us and we worked a little bit. But I think we've gotten to spend more time together. Garrett and I, well, we were always friends. Maybe, maybe it's in the best two examples here, but a lot of the other folks <laughs> and I didn't know as well. You know, Jerry Lininger was only in the office for like a few months or something after he came back from Mir. And I never, but now I've gotten to know him. So you get to know a lot of the former astronauts. And I think that's because the former astronauts don't necessarily want to talk to the current astronauts because we're jealous of those astronauts. So we tend to, we tend to form our relationships with each other. And it's been kind of cool. It's like a different, a different set of yeah. friends or, or a club to belong to, which is actually pretty cool. We commiserate over how glad we are we didn't have to compete about against that bunch of folks. Yeah, yeah holy yeah. cow. I don't yeah. know where they get these. We wouldn't stand yeah. No kidding. Jeez. 
My, I would have been toast, just yeah. absolute toast. Kathy, I'm curious about you. How, how was your experience? That's you a good one. Yeah. Turn it um, around, Karen. Yeah. One point that you guys have talked about that I did not experience quite the same way. Yes, there was a camaraderie and a kind of mutual support. And maybe this is just me misreading signals and cues. But the competition felt more, a little more cutthroat than you guys have said. I mean, there, I did have a couple instances mm-hmm. where I was stumbling and, and not doing something at the best way. And the quote unquote help stepped in, yes, but made it very clear that they will make sure the world knows who actually got it done and who wasn't able wow. to get it done. So a little, you know, mm. little watch your back a little bit. Mm. I had a couple of close friends in the office. Mm. And I had never been in that kind of competitive environment before. So that really kind of put me on edge early on. I think you, you it was a little bit different. I, I, I know even when I was there in, in the early, when I first got there, there was still a little bit of that kind of toxicity, yeah. especially in the EVA yeah. world. Oh, yeah. The EVA world was crazy toxic back then. I, I think we kind of did a good job of purging that uh, mm-hmm. eventually. Uh, yeah. But it took time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That colored a lot of... Well, it colored how close or cordial or easygoing or not mm-hmm. my internal relationships were in the office. So I was real selective with a couple of folks. I, you know, I came to really know and trust as friends and, you know, could fly with any of them, but would be a little more watchful with some. Yeah, who, who are those ones you really had to watch? Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> Come on. They know who they, well, actually that kind of person doesn't know that's who the they problem, are. Right? That's the problem, right? Yeah, that's point. true. Yeah. yeah. Garrett being one of the first Jewish astronauts on station, but you were with the first group of women that were selected. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty groundbreaking there. It was pretty groundbreaking. And we, I think all six of us were, we we are quite aware of that and mainly aware. I mean, we're aware of two things. I think one that one of the six of us would become, you know, the John Glenn of women in space, you know, the Alan Shepard of women in space, that was probably going to be some part performance and some part, you know, other factors. So just go to your best was kind of the only way to uh, vie for Mm -hmm. that. But the other thing we realized was for a lot of reasons we got in, but a lot of women before us and changes in society had, the door was ajar, it was no longer nailed shut for women to come into the space program in various roles, even in astronaut. And a lot was riding on us and how we performed personally, character-wise, and professionally to make sure that that door was, you know, like seriously open wide for women who would come after us. So I think that we felt pretty keenly. One or more of us botched one or two things up too badly. The world might try to close the door again uh, or see, I told you they yep. couldn't do it. I right. just knew, you knew this wasn't going to work. You know, none of us, I think, pursued that. As you guys are saying, we pursued the opportunity because what it meant to us personally, what it meant to the country, you know, mass, like you said, the draw of being part of something that's bigger than you and is about more than just your paycheck or a narrow little automaton kind of job, you know, all of those things were the attraction. You know, the upside, NASA was way more leery of the celebrity aspects of astronauting in our era than they are now. And of course, there was no such thing as social media. I mean, there wasn't even hardly any such thing as the internet when I started. I am that old. So it's a very different world in terms of the kind of the scale of public exposure that current astronauts have and that you guys have than we had. We were supposed to be the sort of anonymous truck drivers and bus drivers, right? It was all about the cargo and the customers and what they would do in orbit, which suited me fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can hold a room, I can command a room, talk to 2,000 people at a time. And it's, I think, a privilege, probably the best after effect of being an astronaut for me 
is that it creates opportunities to influence and inspire other people. And I think you both said at the start of our chat today, you both said something along the lines of, you have to be somebody other than me to become an astronaut. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of people out there from grade schoolers up to early career professionals that think that way. So I think the chance that you have conversations like this, that was kind of a big motivation of my podcast. There are probably people out there who ought to apply yeah. to SpaceX or to Sierra or to NASA. They've got what it takes to fly in space, but they're stuck in, you know, you've got to be somebody other than me. They look at you guys, current flyers or me as a fait accompli and say, well, I can't possibly be that. But none of us believed we could possibly be that from the start either. We just kept stepping our way forward until we found ourselves yeah. at the door. Don't take yourself out of it. Let, let, yeah. let NASA yeah. tell you no, which they did three <laughs> times with me and I kept trying. The only the only folks that have zero chance of getting in are people who don't apply. That's right. That's when That's it's right. a, you know what the outcome is. Correct. Right. And, and, and two other things about that. One is that I advise people all the time, don't think that they're looking for somebody that's not you. You, you have to be you. If you try to yeah. be somebody else, it's going to come off yeah, artificial and not it's gonna not going to work. Yeah. And the other thing is, after I got selected, I remember somebody else, as I was shipping off to Houston, gave me a piece of advice and said, remember, they selected you. Mm-hmm. So be you. Don't try to be somebody else when you get there. Don't make up some image of what you think they selected. Yeah. They picked you. Right. And they actually saw a fair amount of you. They got a good insight about who you are. Or they, or they messed up and I, and I tricked them. Yeah. Or they <laughs> thought they were taking Mistrakio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That guy. But the point is that being authentic to your true self is really important. And, and the other thing, though, that we just talked about, both Mass and I talked about how we, we were not going to be test pilots. And we saw our test pilots in Apollo. And then we, we thought, well, this is not for us. So th- this, this kind of is a different way of looking at representation, the importance of seeing somebody that looks like you to give you the sense to believe. And until I saw like Leroy and Ellen, everybody else, all these scientists and engineers making it, that was what it took to get me serious about it. But for you, I mean, you had a situation where you had nobody that looked like you as something in the mouth. So how did, how did you overcome that? You know, I got to hand that to my parents because I've got one older brother and there was not ever anything in our family that was communicated about girls don't do this or boys don't do that. And I've had a curiosity and an aptitude for figuring out how things work from day one, which maybe in some families, you know, that's what the boy does and the girl does other things. Not with my parents. So, yeah, I mean, I watched the early guys and it was all guys avidly. And Garrett, I just, I, I just didn't see only men do this. I saw attributes they had. I saw their curiosity. I saw their drive. I saw their you know, the kind of courage to try something no one's done before, their cleverness, their ingenuity to figure stuff out. And I knew that is the kind of life I want. That really resonates with me. Now, I mean, it's like age 10, 11, 12. I had no idea how you get that kind of life. So I just felt my way forward. I discovered about the same age that I have a flair for foreign languages. So I figured, well, okay, foreign service officers have a similar kind of life, at least if you believe what James Michener wrote in Caravan. So maybe I'll just parlay the languages into something like that. And then I went to my undergrad as a language major. I mean, I was already fluent in French and German, get to start Russian. And I was informed I had to take three science classes. First year, mandatory, can't get out of it. Tantrums don't work. (laughs) That's where I discovered marine biologists and oceanographers. And my oceanography prof, the guy that really is responsible for all this, my first year freshman oceanography prof, 
He's like all of, he's not even a decade older than the freshman he's teaching in the class. I mean, he's like freshly minted PhD, surfer dude, total <laughs> surfer dude, and total cool and approachable. And so I'm seeing the lifestyles of this marine biologist and this oceanographer and going, that's what they're doing. I mean, they're living that kind of life. It's on Earth. It's not in orbit, but it's the same. It's it's cut from the same cloth, and people are buying them airplane tickets to go all around the world and figure out how this planet works. I'm going. I'm going with them. Mm-hmm. So that was it. And I think you know my ocean going expedition work, which started my fourth year of university, extended all through grad school. It's twelve knots. 12 miles an hour instead of 17,000 miles an hour. <laughs> but a lot of the planning, the backing up, the what if, the equipping, I was integrally involved in all of that. And on at least the institute I went to, was also allowed to con the ship, you know, to not just be the data cruncher, but actually work with the bridge crew on where are we going and how are we going and where do we need the ship position to put this gear over the side or whatever. So I kind of got to be a, a mission specialist in the same way that we got to be in the astronaut program. At a smaller, slower scale, but the North Atlantic in October can make your life interesting. So it was reasonably high stakes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My PhD thesis area is the whole story of the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. That's where my PhD thesis work was. Really? Wow. Wow. And I have been in that area in an October with the storm going through. (laughs) Wow. That's scary. Yeah. So that, but I'm very impressed, Kathy, because, you know, Mass and I were like, oh, you got to be a test pilot? All right, I guess we'll give up on that. (laughs) (laughs) And you 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 weren't going to let anything stop you. And that's, that's, that's really impressive. I was going to find my way, I hoped, Mm -hmm. to some life that was inquisitive and adventurous. That's kind of the two things I was looking for. That's great. You know, it turned out okay. Yeah. Yeah, and you've inspired others. I know my my crewmate Megan MacArthur talks about meeting you at some point when she was in. Yeah, she was interested in the ocean as well, and she went into oceanography, even though she thought maybe to become an astronaut she needed to do something else. And that's, I think, yeah, a, she was thinking she had to be aerospace. Yeah, you, yeah. You know, she she talks about that conversation. Yeah, I did one of my podcast episodes about that, and cool. And she actually she actually beamed something down from her stint on the space station, telling that same story. We, yeah, we both love telling that. Yeah, follow what you're what you love and it'll lead you in the right the right direction. Right. And if the very selective door you're hoping to get through turns out to not open for you, then at least that formula has put you on a path for an effective, rewarding, yeah. productive life. And yeah, maybe always have that regret that you didn't manage to bash that one door down, but yeah. And sometimes it works out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So final question, when's the next installment of Two Funny Astros? What's up with your podcast? And what, why did you guys start a podcast? I know putting the two of you in a room or on a line together just is a massively hilarious joke fest. So you were just missing, <laughs> well, missing the comedy. Well, the, there you go right there. <laughs> <laughs> when I first met Garrett, we were, he was in the class after mine, the class of 1998. And uh, he had like a reception for us. You guys threw a party for the office. Somebody told us that was, that was a good way to make But friends. I remember, me, I, Garrett, I don't know if you remember <laughs> this, but I remember meeting. I didn't meet him during the party, but I met him in the parking lot after. We probably, mm-hmm. we had to get home at the same time or something. So I remember seeing him go, and we introduced each other. And I was like, this guy's hilarious. No. And so uh, Garrett <laughs> became my comic relief and I became his comic relief because we really are, as our motto is, we're not funny people, we're f- funny for astronauts. 
So we relied on each other <laughs> right, Kathy, for know. some use. As astronauts go, you get the There you go. There's a lot of funny astronauts. Garrett can give it his version <laughs> of it too. But uh, but we would, I would call him, I would just call Garrett. Something would happen. I don't know what it was. I'd see something on Saturday Night Live skit or something silly or whatever it was. And I would call him and we'd talk about what was going on. And this is, you know, post NASA. And my sister overheard one of our conversations. She's like, you guys are hilarious. You crack each other up and you're funny. Maybe there's a podcast there. And so that I think was how I uh, I got interested in maybe trying to do it. Instead of just, just talking to Garrett once a week on the phone, record it, and maybe we get a podcast out of it. And there you go. that's how it started. But Garrett maybe has a different recollection of things. No, it's the same thing. I mean, we you used to crack me up all the time. I remember... Uh... <laughs> You used to make me laugh at funerals, which was really uh, awkward. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That I remember was probably that. inappropriate. That wasn't all my fault, Garrett. The circumstances, <laughs> I had to react to. That's true. That is, yeah, that is true. Yeah. All right. We're getting you guys back on to hear the laughing at funeral story. <laughs> So, yeah, no, but hopefully we'll be back. You know, we're yeah. right now we, we did the kind of a first season of Two Funny Astronauts and um, we're looking to continue. We're looking to get a little support to help us out. And uh, we got something in the works. And if that all comes together, we'll be back on the air, uh, hopefully before too long. We'd love yeah. to get back and record some more episodes. Yep. Well, thanks for joining me for this episode. It's been great fun getting to know you even a little bit better. Yeah, this thanks, was really Kevin. fun for me, too. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And uh it's just really cool. I remember when you got selected to be an astronaut in your Hubble missions, and we got to know each other a little bit through that. And it's, uh, it's amazing how life turns out. So really a pleasure and honor to be a part of your podcast and to be on with Garrett. Just oh, no matter what I do with Garrett, it's fun. <laughs> it's been a, a, a fun time. Thank you. More to follow. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, Along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to KathySullivanExplores.com.